So this year, um, and we've been we've with a number of um, breaks, we've been looking and working through quite systematically the book of Acts. Acts is really the pivotal book of the New Testament. Somebody somebody once said that the best way to appreciate the book of Acts is to imagine the Bible without it. You know, if you, if you imagine you've just read the life of Jesus from four different writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament named after the authors. They've written biographies of Jesus. And then if you don't have Acts, you, you leap to the book of Romans, which is a, a letter written by Paul. It starts, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, to all in Rome who are loved by God. And you think, Rome? How did the story get from Jerusalem to Rome? And who's Paul? Where's all this? And then you read a bit further and you think, well, he's written loads of letters to churches and individuals. It's, it's disconnected. You can't get it. So the book of Acts is integral to our understanding of Scripture. With Acts, everything falls into place. You get introduced to the characters and, and the churches. So can I make a plea? Can I encourage you to read the book of Acts? It's actually a really easy read. It moves along like a film script. It's great. It's exciting. It's fun to read. You can see all the characters and stories developing, and it will aid you in your understanding of the New Testament. Like I said right at the beginning, it's pivotal to our understanding. So who has been reading the book of Acts as we've been working through this series? Is there many of you? I certainly have. Not so many. You're probably stuck in your own reading plans. Why don't you just do it as a little extra? Read the book of Acts. Or if you don't have time, you can get free Bible apps where somebody reads it to you. It's even easier. But listen to the book of Acts. Anyway, last week we heard how the rapidly growing Jerusalem church um, had appointed seven men to be responsible for helping, the, helping out the widows of a, a sort of Hellenistic Greek background who were in, in the church at that point, uh, who were who being overlooked with the distribution of food. Uh, this week, I'd like to look at just one of those seven men, a man called Stephen. And we're going to look at his, a really quite a long narrative from chapters 6 and 7. So I'm not going to read through the whole passage because that will take a too, too much time. This is why I'm going to encourage you to go and read it particularly his message in chapter 7. And as you can see behind me, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. The man, the message, and the martyr. Did you see what I did there? Yeah, I could have said the person, the preach, and the promotion. I quite like that. Because as we as, we as believers die this mortal body is swallowed up by life and we are promoted to glory, as the Salvation Army used to say. But I'm going to stick with the alliteration around the letter M, the man, the message, and the martyr. That gives a clue, if you don't know the end of the story, that Stephen is martyred. He's killed for his faith, but we'll get to that in a little while. So, first of all, Stephen the man. We first meet Stephen early in Acts chapter 6, he was one of the seven, like I said, who was chosen by the church to oversee the fair distribution of food to the needy widows. In verse 7, 
We read this, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. That's the context. There's growth. The church in Jerusalem had seen significant continued growth. It began with an explosion on the day of Pentecost, if you remember back to that sermon in, in uh, Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 were added to their number in one day. I mean, imagine that. <coughs> Seriously, imagine that. Imagine a church not a similar size to us suddenly overnight having 3,000 added to their number. I sometimes pray that. I don't know what that would mean for all of us. That would be a lot of hard work, wouldn't it? 3,000 added to their number in one day. This building would suddenly be far too small. We'd have to to do things very differently. But God, would you do something similar today, I pray. And the church, after that explosion of growth, continued to grow. And this this verse here, um, verse 7 of chapter 6, sums it up. The word word of God kept spreading. The number of believers continued to increase. And many of the priests were coming to faith. Now, the priests... (coughs) Were, real, were, were leaders in society. They were the influences in lots of ways. And they're coming to Christ. Now, maybe that was the reason, or at least one of them, for the increase in persecution that came against the church. You know, if you think about it, a church that isn't spreading the good news or, and, and not increasing numerically, including a number of society's leaders, wouldn't really be noticed that much, would it? think, well, why, why would people want to persecute that? It's, it's a church which is irrelevant, has no, has no relevance to today's society. But if it's growing, if the thousands are being swept into the kingdom, if, if influential leaders are, are becoming Christians, suddenly it has an impact on society. But that's what we want, isn't it? We want our society impacted by gospel advance and therefore kingdom advance. We'd like that to be our story Two. So, this man Stephen, in verse 8, says he's a man full of God's grace and power. He performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. I'd love that to be said of me. Seriously, I think. Look, let that be. You can put that on my gravestone if it's true. A man full of God's grace and power who have performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. And remember, this, this guy, he's not one of the apostles. He's not one of the 12, the founding fathers of that Jerusalem church. He's a member. He's, he's, he's a pew. He's out there in the pew. He's set. But God chose him and used him. You know, in, in Acts 6 verse 3, we read that Stephen, along with the others, is full of the spirit of wisdom. In verse 5, Stephen is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then this, passage, this verse here, verse 8, it says, full of grace and power. Is he just lucky? Is he just lucky to be full of wisdom, faith, and grace and power? You know, oh, I wish I had that. It's all right for him. I don't think it's luck. You know, Stephen spent time in the presence of God. We know that. How do we know that? Well, in a moment, we're going to look at his message, which is just a repeat of Scripture and quoting Scripture. He hung out in the presence 
of God. He, he obviously knew his Bible very well, and, and, and that's why he spoke with wisdom. He prayed bold prayers. We're going to see some of those at the minute, in a minute. He performed, it says, amazing miracles and signs, and he made bitter enemies. Can you see a parallel with Jesus in this? He understood, the, he understood God's word. He spoke with wisdom. He prayed bold prayers. He did amazing miracles and signs, and he made enemies. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to be prepared to give him our time, give him our heart. But we also need to be prepared to make enemies, to have people oppose us and hate us. Not because we're obnoxious, right? But because we're like Jesus. And don't misunderstand the two. Don't be horrible. Don't be obnoxious, but be like Jesus. And you'll probably have enemies as a result of it. But that's part of our call, isn't it? You know, we're, we're not going to be universally loved around the place, but we want to be like Jesus. So Stephen was like Jesus. So let me read from the, the next bit from Acts chapter 6. I'll read nine from verse 9 to 11. It says, One day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So, because they couldn't stand with him, Verse 11 says, So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, And we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Although there was rapid growth in the church, although there was more and more believers in Jerusalem, there were still many who didn't believe and many who opposed. Tensions were growing, and the Jews began to throw out these accusations that the, the, the persecution was rumbling away. And it's specifically focused at this point on Stephen. Verse 12, this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council or the Sanhedrin. The lying witnesses said, well, this man's always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. They charged him with blasphemy, with speaking against God and specifically against God's temple and against the law. They saw themselves as custodians and guardians of the truth. There's another parallel there with Jesus, isn't there? Stephen and Jesus were both arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Both were accused by lying witnesses. Both were accused of speaking against the temple and the law of blasphemy. And both were put to death. So Stephen is on trial for having taught what Jesus taught. Verse 15 says, and I love this bit. So he's, he's, he's on trial. They, they've, they've, they're speaking to him. At this point, it says, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face 
became as bright as an angel's. Or in one of the translations just says, he had the face of an angel. Now that expression is used in, in a number of times through Scripture, um, notably in, in the Old Testament in, in 2 Samuel, it's used to denote a sort of special wisdom as a, as a phrase, as an idiom. In, in the book of Genesis, it's used to denote special majesty and glory as if it were the face of God you were looking at. And you maybe know the story of when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face shone so that the people were afraid to come near him because he'd, he'd been with God and it was like, it's like that almost a reflected glory, if you like. So one, one commentator said the expression is used to denote the impression produced on the countenance, the, the, the look, by communion with God. The more you, time you spend with God, it's almost like the more you look like him or you reflect his glory. And I've experienced that with, with people, and people have said certain things. You know, you know you've come, I, remember, I remember one time a relation of ours came to visit um, after Denise was doing what she's good at. She'd just been spending hours up, upstairs. I was probably watching football, but she was upstairs praying in the presence of God. And, and her aunt, who came round, just commented on the look in her eyes. She said, you've got that look. And she knew another Christian. And she said, you look like so-and-so. We can reflect something of his glory. And even in this courtroom setting, and make no mistake, Stephen will be very aware that he's facing, um, you know, he's on trial for his life. And yet he's reflecting the glory of God. Just because we're in difficult situations, just because we're in painful places, it doesn't mean we can't reflect his glory to those around us, does it? We can show him. We can live for him. We can reflect him. So Stephen stands before his accusers and he looks heavenly. That's Stephen the man. Let's look at Stephen and his message. Now this, you've got, you got to understand, right? He's in court Remember that this is the same ruling council that had already executed Jesus not so long before. They'd sentenced Peter and the other apostles to a vicious flogging, as though they were doing him a favour. And we could have expected Stephen in the light of that. You think that's all in his mind. That's ringing, that's ringing round in his head. You think, Okay, I'm before this lot. I'm going to have to be very careful with what I say. I'm going to give a respectful defense for my position. Now, he's on trial for his life, remember. Instead, and you're going to have to read this because I'm not going to read through this. This is one of the longest sermons recorded in the book of Acts. He said, instead of defending himself respectfully, he goes on the attack he attacks these influential rulers of society and he turns the table on them. The charges against Stephen was blasphemy, right? And these are the blasphemy against the temple and blasphemy against the law of Moses. They're the two main themes that his sermon picks up. And while you're waiting for your roast dinner today, why don't you read through Acts chapter 7 and read this, this long sermon, this long defense 
He, well, it's not even a defense. Like I say, it's an attack. Because he highlights the sin of those who claim these guys in front of him, the custodians of the Jewish, Jewish way of life. He, he, he challenges them and claims that they're the blasphemers. That's not the best way to get a not guilty verdict, is it? <laughs> really? Like I say, this sermon is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. It's about twice as long as Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And what it is, and again, I said it, Peter understands his scripture so well because it's essentially a retelling of the entire story of the Old Testament with lots of direct quotes of scripture. He memorized large chunks of the Bible. His speech is like the, the work of a skilled barrister. And he very quickly turns the tables to put his accusers on trial themselves. And he's saying, it's you who are the blasphemers. You know, they refer to this holy place, they, the temple, the place where they believed God dwelt. And even from the Bible, he challenges them. This is why it's good to, under, to know the scriptures, you know. It's good to know the Bible because he says they're, they're the true blasphemers. And he goes, he mentions, he says, well, look, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. That ain't in Jerusalem. Joseph, he appeared to Joseph in Egypt. Well, that's a long way from Jerusalem. He appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's outside the borders of Israel too. Even when Joshua led the people into the promised land, God dwelt in Moses' tabernacle not in Jerusalem and he's just challenging these guys from their own scriptures you say what you're doing defending the temple you're wrong you're blaspheming I mean can you imagine you have to picture the scene it'd make a good movie wouldn't it there'd be these these upright members of society are probably seething they're getting who is this guy and they're getting more and more angry and he don't let up because so, the Sanhedrin, the, ruin, the Jewish ruling council, were the ones who blasphemed God because of their obsession with the temple. Can God be confined to one building? Do you think so? Of course not. We have a God who is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. He's not restricted by four walls, is he? Even if they are great, some grand cathedral. God is far, far bigger. And that is what Stephen is trying to point out to these guys. Your view of God is so small and you want to control it. You want to restrict him to a temple. That's ridiculous. That's, like, that's blasphemy. Can you imagine? The, the, the steam would have been coming out of their ears, wouldn't it? As Stephen, this man with a face like an angel, you know, he probably wasn't shouting. He didn't need to shout. He's just going through the scriptures. He's telling them what the truth is. He's confident in his God. And he doesn't care if this ends in death. The Jewish leaders didn't even realize that actually it was them who was on trial. Not Stephen. So we get to Stephen the martyr, the man, the message, and the martyr. A martyr, someone killed for their faith, killed for their belief. They're furious 
with his message. And they, they, they drag him outside the city walls to stone him to death. Verse 54 says, The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at him in rage. Or one of the translations says, They gnashed their teeth at him. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. You know, one, of the, one of the definitions of hell is a place where there is a gnashing of teeth. So it's as much a place of regret as a place of uncontrolled anger. Hell is a place where there's a gnashing of teeth. And now these custodians of the Jewish faith are behaving hell-like before them. Got you. Got you. Can you, you've got to imagine it, haven't you? <laughs> Shall I act it? Yeah. <laughs> My skills are not that great. <laughs> So, so they're, they're shaking their fists or gnashing their teeth at him. In verse 55, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told him, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Now, I love this. Because a number of times in the New Testament, and we preached this right at the beginning of this series, we read that Jesus, when his job was done, after, he, after his mission of rescue, coming, leaving the perfection of heaven and coming to this earth and living a pure and perfect sinless life nonetheless being arrested and tortured and crucified killed as a sacrifice for us and then three days later rising again to life and then 40 days later ascending to the father in heaven and at that point he sat down figuratively at the right hand of the father because his job was done. Right? It's like, it's finished now. I've done it all. Which is why I love the fact that Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, I can't back this up with a scripture particularly, but was Jesus giving him a, a standing ovation? His job was done. And he sees a vision of the, of the cross. It's like... He, Stephen's coming. I'm getting up. Stephen, welcome. Do you love that? I'd love to have some that sort of greeting when I enter glory, wouldn't you? That Jesus stands. You imagine his arms open, not fixed to a cross, but you know, ready to embrace. Stephen, welcome home. You are brave. You are wise. You are full of faith. You are full of power. Your race is run. Verse 57 says, Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. I mean, this is the sort of thing kids do, isn't it? La, 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 la. You block your ears and you make noise because they can't cope. That's their response. This is the Jewish ruling council. He's confounded them. He's baffled them. He's beat them. And their only response, all their veneer of respectability and poshness has fallen away. And they are resorting to blocking their ears and shouting in response to the man of God. 
They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As you work through this series in the book of Acts with us, and maybe you should go and read it and you'll find out that Saul becomes the apostle Paul. But So right now, he's there agreeing and supporting and endorsing the the, 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 the murder, the martyrdom of Stephen. And Stephen's still doing it. Look at verse 59. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees with the rocks crashing in on him. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. It's like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you see another parallel with Jesus? Jesus himself said, Father, receive my spirit. And Jesus also said from the cross, forgive them. And with that, he died. Even as he dies, Stephen is still a perfect witness for Christ full of grace full of forgiveness man these people have treated him so terribly they fitted him up with lying witnesses he made a a magnificent defense for his case and all that did was induce rage amongst those people and they drag him out and they stone him to death that's not a very nice way to go is it throwing big rocks on someone until they're dead And yet he still demonstrates grace and forgiveness. And his judges, who who were essentially the elite of society, these are are the posh ones, these are by and large the wealthy, these are the, 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 the movers and shakers. All they reveal is their anger and a vicious hatred. Whereas Stephen shows peace, and love even for his enemies. Beautiful, isn't it? He commits his spirit to Jesus. He asks forgiveness for the lynch mob. And then he goes to join his glorified saviour in heaven. It's almost laughable that the leaders of Jerusalem think they've passed their verdict on Stephen they don't get that Stephen's actually passed God's verdict over them. You know, three years earlier, approximately three years earlier, the city of Jerusalem have called for Jesus' blood. You remember? Crucify him! Crucify him! And had Jesus crucified outside the city walls. But by the grace of God, he rose again. And he sent his followers back into that very same city. Go to Jerusalem. Wait in an upper room. Now, as they drag Stephen outside the city walls and kill him, it's like they've rejected Jesus a second time. What are they doing? Have they not learnt their lesson? They've rejected him again. 
and yet still his grace is towards them. What a gracious father we have, don't we? The amount of times we muck it up, the amount of times we get it wrong in our relationships, even with one another. And yet he still says, no, I love you. You can change. You can change. You can repent. You can know my forgiveness. You can know my embrace. Powerful, isn't it? What a man Stephen is. You know, we're going to go on to see Stephen's murder would be the catalyst for the scattering of the believers from Jerusalem. They're eventually settling Judea, Samaria, distant lands, the ends of the earth. But that's not for today. I just want to conclude with looking at those three things, the man, the message, and the martyr. The person, the preach, and the promotion. You know, Stephen was a man of wisdom, of faith, of grace, of power in the Holy Spirit. Could that be said of you? I want that to be said of me. I want that to be my reputation. I want to be a man who is welcomed by a standing Jesus. Saying, welcome home. I don't want to waste my days on this earth. I don't know how old Stephen was when he, when he died. But it was a premature death, wasn't it? I think, did he waste his days? God didn't seem to think so. Otherwise, he wouldn't have took him home. You know, he could have been the same as the apostles who, who got a, a beat, severe beating, but they carried on. Their day was going to come, actually. Not, not All but one of the apostles died a premature death. One, John, was exiled, but died in old age. But I want a reputation like Stephen's. A man of wisdom, faith, grace and power in the Holy Spirit. And his message, this is, again, his message is a challenge. I, pr- I, I pray none of us end up in this sort of court. We still live in a nation which is free, although many, many of us and our friends are going to nations which are far from free. But we wanna, I want us to live a message, a life which is a message of truth, but of no compromise. A life which is honouring of God and of man, even our enemies. Love your enemies and pray for them, he says, doesn't he? But no compromise. So wherever we find ourselves and whatever context we have got a message on our lips, whether it's in, in a, before the highest court in the land or if it's with a friend in the workplace over a coffee, We want to be honest and true and upright and represent him, but with love and peace and wisdom shot through everything we say. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, the letter says. That's what we want to be. And the martyr? Well, I don't want to die. I don't. But I've got to get to that place where I'm saying I'm willing to do it, Lord. 
And I think it's part of the passion to be like Jesus. Jesus, I want to be like you. What does that actually mean? You want, I want to walk on water. I want to, want to turn, turn water into wine. And I want to feed thousands with one boy's packed lunch. And I want to see the, every sickness and disease healed and the dead raised. And glory, hallelujah. But also, we know Jesus' end. His whole mission was his death and his resurrection. A martyr. A passion to be like Jesus even if it means laying down my life. Lord, get me to a, a new place. I want to live a life worthy of a standing ovation from Jesus. Amen. Shall we stand together momentarily? Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for the example of Stephen an ordinary member of the church, not one of the leaders, yet powerful and pure, full of grace and faith and power, full of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that every one of us would be like that. Every one of us would emulate him in, in our way in the way you've called for us as we walk the path you've set out for us. Lord, you chose each of us before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless. You know us. You know our character and our personality. We've heard right at the beginning, you're the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb. You know, Lord, and I pray we would honour you with every step, with every breath, with every act, with every thought. And Jesus, I just want to be real and thank you that when we don't, you still love us. And you still have grace enough to give us room to change. Thank you for your perfect love towards us, Lord. Thank you that we don't leave you in this room when we go because you're not confined to four walls. That when we go about our week, when we go back to the place of work or education or to our homes and our communities, you are there with us, giving us everything we need. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.